One of the biggest Canadian names in the movie business died over the weekend. Ivan Reitman passed away at home in California at the age of 75. He was behind some of the most loved comedies of all time, including his producer of Animal House and his director as well of a whole slew of movies, including Meatballs, Stripes, and of course, Ghostbusters, and later Twins, Kindergarten Cop, and Dave. Joining me now to talk a little bit more about Reitman's unique recipe for success and his legacy is Eric Alper, entertainment publicist and music commentator. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, it was just looking at the at the amount of movies that he was involved in, Ivan Reitman was involved in, it's spectacular, the kind of, I mean, it's sort of like a template of my youth to some extent with Animal House <laughs> and Meatballs and Stripes. And I know how old you are now. Exactly. Yeah, I'm 50. So that's, or 51 actually now. Uh, tell me a bit about what it was that, that, that allowed, what his key to success was, because it wasn't always critically acclaimed, was it? No, I, I, and I think a large part of it is why Canadians are so funny in the first place. And there are so many reasons of, you know, the fact that we get bombarded by the UK sensibilities and the US giant entertainment making machine. It makes us feel a little bit, um, you know, non-superior to the rest of the planet. And if you can't laugh at yourself, you can't really laugh at anything. And I think that's where where it came from. It, it's that line that, you know, you have to be able to laugh at tragedy just to stop yourself from crying. And when he moved here, he probably had no idea what to do. And he's in a place like Hamilton, Ontario, and no slight to Hamilton, Ontario people, but it's not the most heavy-duty entertainment site in the world, especially when you're so close to something as big like Toronto. So the ability for him to take that that funniness that sensibility that well we could just be quirky because nobody's looking at us and nobody cares about what we do that's where you end up with him producing animal house and then using bill murray and really discovering him and realizing that he could be much bigger than saturday night live um into films like meatballs and stripes and then ghostbusters and that led to just an an obscene amount of comedy wealth um before during and after him and i think he influenced a lot of people that came after him from the kids in the hall to mike myers um and hung out with people like bill murray and dan Aykroyd and harold ramus and and all the people from um you know the old old sctv days of john candy and martin short just his ability to make things a little bit weird, a little bit crude. I mean, I don't know if Animal House could even be made today. I don't even know if Meatballs could even be made today. Certainly not Stripes. Um, But that's why I think Ivan was so endearing was he was just able to push the envelope on what we would consider okay and normal in comedy. And we loved him for it. It's always remarkable. And you're right, because as a Canadian, um, I think we were exposed to sort of, oh, look, there are Canadian stars in these movies. Um, such as, I remember John Candy from Stripes vividly uh, from that era. But what do you think? I mean, his movies have have seemed to have, and you're right, they probably couldn't make Stripes or Animal House today. But in terms of sort of meatballs and Ghostbusters, his movies far outlasted their critical acclaim at the time. They were far more successful than critically acclaimed, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And and I think part of it is those, um, um, you know, when you're a film critic, you're kind of looking for some sort of illumination into the human ex- experience and the human existence um, and how human beings relate to one another. Um, but they would never have 
you know, John Belushi pretend that he's a pimple um, in Animal House or having, you know, something like meatballs where you could stand up for for being right and you can stand up to your bullies and geeks are okay and i think the ability for him to still talk about what makes us all human what makes us all likable there was always a heart in what he did yes ghostbusters might have had you know ghosts in it and and you know a little bit of of sci-fi to it but overall it was just the relationship between the ghostbusters that that made it so worthwhile and the ability to take somebody like a strong man like Arnold Schwarzenegger and turn him into a likable, funny character in twins. And then in kindergarten cop using the president of the United States of America, that high power of office that's normally not to be made fun of at that time for Kevin Klein and Dave, all of those films had very much um, a soul searching um, relevance in it that made us all be able to relate to these people. Even if you were, you know, six foot eight and 350 pounds like Arnold, or you were the president of the United States. Yeah, it was hard to have imagined. And people forget when twins first came out specifically that, that, you know, Schwarzenegger had been identified with the first Terminator movie, obviously that had made movies like Predator. I mean, this was not meant to be, this was not someone anyone saw as being a comic lead. And then all of a sudden, you know, Ivan Reitman did. And it's, yeah. uh, it's been... nobody wanted this film made. In fact, there was so much uncertainty around the project that all of the producers are no, and Danny DeVito, who played the other main role, um, all took away their fees for a share of the profits, meaning nobody got paid their regular rate. But if the movie did well, they would all get points on a movie. They would all take a percentage, which is essentially what Marvel actors and actresses do now. They kind of say, look, you give me $100,000 for my schedule, but I'm going to take Point one percent of the profits, and then over the course of a billion dollars, that is in the you know tens of millions of dollars, and that's exactly what happened with twins. Um, it, it was supposed to, you know, it was made for eighteen million dollars. It made over three hundred million dollars at the box office. So they all got very wealthy on taking a chance, and it wasn't because of that money or that contract. They did it because they all wanted to work with Ivan. They thought that you know that the the movie would just do so well. Um, that they just believed in it so much. And the same thing with Kindergarten Cop, that to take somebody like Arnold, who really had no sense of humor, at least to all of us, we just thought he was just, you know, this Terminator robot who loved violence and just liked to shoot people. But making him human and making him funny um, probably bought the next 40 years of Arnold's career and even more so for the rest of his life. I was going to say, it's tough to put into words because of the number of movies he made and just how successful he was Midas touch-wise. But if you look at Ivan Reitman's legacy uh, in modern film, what do you think it is? Um, I I think being a great father um, to his son, Jason, um, and his daughters. Jason is now a a huge film director um, (laughs) as well. Um, And I think really just pushing the envelope for what we would consider comedy in North America. Just his fingertips are all over the 1970s and 80s and early 90s films that told us how to laugh. And it's things that we all we all kind of still hold dear. We still hold up Ghostbusters long after all the different kinds of sequels come out. The originals are still the best one. Um, and, and a large part of that has to do with Ivan's sensibility and smarts. We can certainly thank him for uh, for Bill Murray, too, obviously. Yeah, if, if absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, I'm with uh, Eric Alper. Uh, we're talking about the legacy of, of Ivan Reitman, who passed away over the weekend, and the many fantastic movies that he was involved with that have really stood the test of time, specifically as a Canadian. Uh, always proud of those movies. Uh, we're going to change gears a bit when we come back after the break, and I'm going to talk to Eric, uh, entertainment publicist and music commentator. It is Valentine's Day. We're going to talk about love songs and what makes a great love song and why certain ones seem to stick with us forever. That's next. Welcome back. I'm with Eric Alper, entertainment publicist and music commentator. Of course, all evening, we've been asking you to submit your favorite Valentine's Day songs, your favorite love songs. Um, and I wanted to talk a bit about Eric because he knows this business really well. I wanted to talk a bit about what makes a successful love song, because just like Christmas songs, to some extent, you can kind of tell the ones that are organic and the ones that were sort of created, you know, sometimes you get an album, you go, here comes the ballad, right? And you just knew that it was, <laughs> you know, it was built for something like it was built for a specific release for a specific audience. Um, so, so in your estimation, what, what are the secret or ingredients to a perfect, a perfect love song? I think first and foremost, it has to be written about me. <laughs> um, it, 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 that's a surefire way of having a hit. And, uh, no, I, I, I think because music and especially the lyrics, um, these, these musicians and artists are able to say the things that we've longed to hear and longed to say, um, sometimes it's done with lyrics. And sometimes in the case of say unchained melody by the righteous brothers, you have this swooping orchestral finale that almost speaks as loud, if not louder than the actual lyrics in there. So I think part of it is, um, schmaltzy is good. Um, big is better. Um, and you know, they they're not afraid to to let their sh their their love shown um and they have to because while they write the song in complete isolation away from the rest of the world whether it's a love song or a breakup song um you won't get to decide once you release it how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are going to be singing that lyric back to you night after night when you're on tour so you better be sure that you're okay with this. If not, you're going to be thinking about your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend for the rest of your life while you're on stage in front of all of these strangers. But, you know, if you take a look at some of the, the greatest love songs, like At Last by Etta James or Let's Stay Together by Al Green, it, 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 the, the ability to articulate those that moment of love, that, that vow of marriage, the, you know, uh, even a song like I Will Always Love You by Dolly Barton that was later covered by Whitney Houston. Um, people say that, but they kind of, I don't know. My wife would smirk if I ever said that, you know, like she would just be like, she'd push me away. She'd be like, what do you want? You know what I mean? But yeah. so I think though, but when I put on Whitney Houston or Al Green, yeah, you better believe I, you know, I, I become that romantic. So I think it's just the ability to, um, to kind of be bigger than than life and say the things that that you want to hear i mean the beatles were right right yeah. you know let me tell you a secret do you want to know a secret you know yeah. let me whisper you know in your ear the words i want to hear there were so many you know out of the 240 beatles songs that they released during their career officially it's something like 190 of them have the words i me you we or us in the title and that's why that they're so great as as romantic, you know, writers is because they they made it seem like that song was just written for us, not not you and I. Although I'd yeah. be okay with that, but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, in exactly. general. 
Exactly. Um, it's funny when you look back at sort of the most, the world's most famous artists, you know, you look at the Elvis Presleys and the Beatles and so on. They all have kind of their signature or a few yeah. signature romance tracks. Um, I, I was trying to, I, even Brian, I remember living in England when everything I do, I do it for you was number one yeah. for, 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 for like years. For, forever, forever. Yeah. yeah. In fact, so much so that people started giving me a hard time. And I was living in Edinburgh, started giving sure. me a hard time for being Canadian because they were like, you got to so, take so much so, Ben, yeah. it's still number one. Yeah, remarkable. It's exactly, no, like, <laughs> it isn't. But I know what you mean. Um, so, what what are your what are your what are your some of your favorites? What are your oh, favorite? I I mean, you know, just to that point, um, I've been in record label meetings where you have artists that are big in the rock world, and the marketing people and the president of the record labels will say, "Where's your ballad? Like, you need the ballad." Extreme was a heavy metal funk band. And then they came out with more than words and right. completely blew them away. Bon Jovi was big. I mean, Bon Jovi was really big, but he wasn't as big until he put out, you know, I'll be there for you or, um, you know, wanted dead or alive. You know, these right. ballads are huge, but I think God only knows by the beach boys is always right. a good one. Be my baby by the Ronettes is such a great one, especially yeah. because, you know, we, we, we just lost Ronnie Spector, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, something by the Beatles. I mean, even Frank Sinatra has said that, that's the greatest love song ever written and over 500 artists have covered it. Um, what a wonderful world by Sam cook, my girl by the temptation. There's yep. so many older songs that I think it takes a couple of decades sometimes for these new songs to, um, to kind of develop into classics. True. And especially these days with music a bit more fragmented than it was. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember back when songs like Endless Love came out. I mean, there was no yeah. avoiding Endless Love. No. Um, whether you, no. I, I was just a, like, I was a nine-year-old boy. I was, I used and to. And that's I amazing to, that you bring that up, right? Yeah. I remember hearing that in grade six and my parents yeah. loved that song. So yeah. there's nothing like, and no slight to Taylor Swift, although I know she's listening. Um, the, the, the ability the ability for her to write a song like my parents wouldn't know the song. I may know the song, but I have to because I'm in music. But like my daughter, who's 19, knows all of her music. But it are there so many songs that are that cross that generation as much as like, you know, The Girl Is Mine by Michael Jackson or When a Man Loves a Woman that like 60s, you know, my, you know it was recorded in 1966. It's still in probably a dozen films each and every year. I was just thinking about, you know, sort of this, even as a, when you were younger, you'd hear songs from you know, like ballads from the past. I think, wow, that's a great song. I remember um, Sam Cooke's You Send Me. I was always, yeah. he was one of those. Uh, and, and now I'm going to forget the name. Why am I going to forget the name of the, of, of, uh, of the song that from, um, from Witness? Uh, don't know much about history. Don't know much. I'm going to forget the name of the actual title of the song. Yeah, that's um, okay. But what, that was Whitney Houston? No, the um, Sam Cooke song from... Um, from, oh, from witness, from from witness. Oh, with oh, oh wait, uh, what a wonderful not, world! What a wonderful world it would be. Yeah, Don't, not you yeah. send me. It's not, not you send me. You send me. No, but yeah, just, one of those. It, it, yeah, you know what? Just put on any Sam Cooke greatest hits. If if you know, there there's a reason why I think the U.S. population went up seven percent after that album came out. You know, exactly. nine months it was suddenly. How come all these babies are being born? It's like oh oh, Sam Cooke just put an album. You know, or Marvin Gaye. You yeah. know. But, you put on, yeah. let's get it on. And it's like, even if you're in the room, you're kind of like feeling a little bit lonely. You're like, ah, I'm 
going to go eat some chocolate cake now just to like satisfy my hunger right now. That was a great one. I remember there was another one um, back when Frank Sinatra record that came out in the, that, that, that my, you know, was, was, was apparently partially responsible for a baby boom in the, you know, in the late, late right, late forties, right, right. right. Early fifties. And it's funny, uh, like these, these songs that are really popular now, the, the, the newer ones, people like Connie Carey, uh, like Harry Connick Jr. Or Michael Bublé, they're just throwback to the fifties and sixties anyway, you know, yeah. they, they just do that style. I guess that's the one thing about about love tracks that seems to be is that they never go out of fashion, which is which is really interesting because music has changed so much, even in you know in the, my lifetime, my fifty one years, it's gone all over the place. But ballads are ballads, and they almost still all sound the same. Like a new Adele ballad doesn't sound that much different from a Cyndi Lauper ballad or a Madonna ballad right. or, or or a Roberta Flack ballad. Like they're not that different compared to how different other music is these days. Are you telling me that the music industry is full of formula, Ben? Because <laughs> that I'm I'm shocked. But you know, like it, it's funny, like a song like "Someone Like You," which often gets tagged as a love song, is a is a breakup song, but it's in sure. the same style as "Hello." by Adele, which is yeah. a love song. So there's not much different, really. And if you're not listening to the lyrics and you have Every Breath You Take by the Police as your wedding song, and so many people do, even though it's a song about stalkers, um, yep. many, maybe people just aren't listening to the lyrics as much as we think they are. <laughs> you know, maybe you have to spell it out. Like, I love you, you know, yeah. by Ben O'Hara Bryan, you know? I, th I, I think Sting used to talk about that quite often, that he, uh, <laughs> that, he that he was shocked that people thought Every Breath You Take was a love song, but Eric Alper, it's been, thank you so much for your insight. No Have problem. Happy to be here, man. Thanks for having Thanks. me.